Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. Have you heard the quote, for better than never is late? Never to succeed would be too long a period? I've not. I'm familiar with it because it has a modern day metaphor, which is better late than never. I mentioned this as when we approach the end of the year or where in the beginning of a new year, apart from resolutions, this term has made me act on one of my favorite words, procrastination. I don't know why I like the word. It's not a positive one. I just like the way procrastinate sounds. Oh well, different strokes for different folks. In today's episode, we'll discuss the meaning of better late than never. I've got to admit, this is a great way to minimize one's lateness. In this episode, we'll explore a latecomer's and procrastinator's favorite motto, but also its many meanings throughout time up until today. After that, we'll be chatting with our special guest, Kate Warren. You might remember her from one of our previous episodes, The Straw That Broke the Camel's Back. If you'd like to check that out, you can re-listen to it by searching Metaphorically Speaking on all major podcast streaming platforms. On with the show. In order to trace the origin of the idiom, better late than never, let's go back to 1386 to start our journey. More exactly, in 1386 was the year of the publication of the Yeoman's Tale. The tale takes place during a pilgrimage where a canon, a certain rank of priest, is exposed by his yeoman about his schemes. Indeed, the yeoman debunks his master's lies by telling the other pilgrims about his vile and vain attempts to become an alchemist. In the canon's yeoman's tale, in the Canterbury Tales, two strangers approach the company on very tired horses, a canon and his yeoman. Harry Bailey asks them to tell a tale, and the yeoman reveals that the canon is a joker who is capable and sly. As Harry Bailey questions the yeoman further, it becomes clear that the canon is an alchemist skilled in trickery. The canon, overhearing his yeoman giving away so many secrets, flees. The yeoman then begins a story that is based on his own experiences. In part one, the yeoman shares how hard his work for the canon has been, and how it has taken a toll on his health and happiness. He has so much debt he can never hope to repay. He lists the chemicals and preparations the canon's workers would make, and the dangers they faced, but says that all their efforts have failed. In part two, the canon borrows money from a priest and, in return, offers to show the priest a miracle. The priest enthusiastically accepts. The miracle is a trick in which a magic powder appears to turn mercury into real silver. The canon has the priest place mercury and the powder in a crucible. Then, through some sleight of hand, the canon simply adds real silver to the pot while the mercury boils off. Needless to say, the powder never works for the priest, and the canon disappears. The canon's yeoman ends his story by warning the company not to become involved in alchemy, because clearly God dislikes the practice. 
This tale is part of a bigger work called The Canterbury Tales, a collection of tales written by medieval English writer Geoffrey Chaucer. The various stories are presented as the ones told by travellers during their pilgrimage to Canterbury. At the time, it was quite common for Catholic pilgrims to take the Southwark Road to Canterbury in southern England. Once there, they would visit the shrine of St Thomas Becket in the famous Canterbury Cathedral. This book was so popular, it became a phenomenon shortly after its release, to the point where it has since been translated into more than 40 languages. The importance of this book is such that two of the fables included in it, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, as well as Piers Plowman, are considered the first great works of British literature. One notable example of its popularity is that today, almost 700 years after the book was published, it still gets adapted to cinema. Here's a clip from the movie The Green Knight with Dev Patel starring in the leading role. Friends, brothers and sisters, who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Or tale? Getting back to the yeoman's tale, the exact sentence is, for better than never is late, never to succeed would be too long a period. However, even if this book grandly helped to popularise the metaphor, it didn't create it. The metaphor had already been used by writer Titus Levius in his work, History of Rome, written around, can you guess, 27 BC. Even though the better late than ever idiom was popularised during the Middle Ages, it has existed for way longer, certainly since the first civilizations. A question comes to mind. How can such an old metaphor still be commonly used today? We've certainly lost hundreds, if not thousands of metaphors throughout the millennia. How come this one has managed to survive? Well, to begin with, many Latin sayings stayed with us because of their timeless pertinence. In this clip, you'll hear how the very construction of Latin sentences makes them so popular to this day. Latin, more than any other tongue, is the language in which things are not just said, but stay said. The tight grammatical structure of the language helps give Latin sayings a massive architectural grandeur. The verbal equivalent of the Colosseum, the Pantheon or the Pont du Gard. Like those great edifices, they are built to stand the test of time. However, for this one, there is definitely something more to it than syntax. As Darwin said when referring to evolution, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. This applies to metaphors as well. Maybe the most commonly used expression nowadays is not the one that's going to be used in a hundred years, but it will be the one whose meaning has changed, whose meaning adapts throughout the ages according to people's needs and understanding of the world.
My guest this week is the inspiring Kate Warren. After working as a writer for local and national newspapers, but also a TV producer at Channel 4, Channel 5 and the BBC. Longtime listeners will know her for her book, An American Uprising in Second World War England, Mutiny in the Duchy. She addresses the social awakening in the UK after the British population acknowledged the disparities between black and white American soldiers. This week, we'll be talking to her about something a little different. It's an honor to have such an engaged and skillful guest in today's podcast. I'm personally very excited for this interview, especially as she was the first producer of my previous radio show, The Delore Factor. Kate, welcome back to Metaphorically Speaking. It's wonderful to have you back. It really is. And I just thought how apt at the end of the year to round off with someone who I have just admired and respected. And of course, we have a personal touch because it's not just about your book and the things that you do. But of course, you know, as the first producer of one of my shows, The Delor Factor, of course, you're always going to be in my heart. So thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here. It's absolutely lovely to be here. And I should be thanking you because working on the Delore Factor, working with you was really the impetus to go and write. Again, I hadn't written for such a long time. And then we spent that year and I met so many interesting people. Um, I thought, God, I really miss doing this. I really like doing this. And I just suddenly thought, why can't I just write again? And if I had I not been working with you, I don't ever think I'd have written my book. So I'm thanking you. Oh, well, I will accept the thanks. Yay, I feel so good. <laughs> so for listeners who did not catch the first show, tell us about your book and then give us an update as to where you are with it now. Sure. So my book is called An American Uprising in Second World War England, Mutiny in the Duchy. And it's the Duchy of Cornwall that the action takes place. And basically, this is a story of a racial riot that took place amongst American soldiers who are based in Cornwall, Uh, the UK in 1943. And this was a really interesting story to me personally. I've been told about it by my dad, who is a child of the Blitz. He remembers he was actually in London for the Blitz. um, And then his family moved to Launceston in 1947. And he remembers going there and just the talk of the town. Two years after the war finished was this extraordinary, dramatic gun show that had taken place between American soldiers in the Second World War. What was really poignant about it is that nobody knew what happened to the soldiers. There was a huge court case. It took place over three days in Paynton. It had to take place in Paynton because it was the only courtroom big enough to house the huge number of people who were charged for this. But it was covered up. The result of what happened to these soldiers was covered up. And so it was something that a generation, a certain generation of of people in Cornwall talked about a lot and they speculated, many suspected that the soldiers were executed. But it's, it's just always been a very, very interesting story. And for us, so we were brought up in the southeast, but my dad maintained his contacts with Launceston and Cornwall. We used to go on our summer holidays every year and we used to go and see family and friends. And then one day, I really remember this very vividly in the 80s, we went to the town square and you can see the gun holes, there are bullet holes around the door frame and around the war memorial. 
and we felt them for ourselves and it just kind of sparked an interest in this story and things came together for me personally when we went to America my husband and I spent a year out traveling around America I've worked in TV documentary production he was on a freelance sort of contract and so it just coincided before we had kids we wanted to go and see America and I didn't know much about America before and we went to the south and I learned a lot about the history there which I just didn't know and the two ideas kind of came together and I resolved to find out what happened to these American soldiers in my dad's hometown of Cornwall, another place which is very close to my heart. So I put in a lucky freedom of information request um, to Washington. And about a year later, I received at my door a foot long transcript. And it was the transcript of the court martial. And I glimpsed at it. And I thought, God, that looks really interesting. And I put it under my bed because the day I received it, it was a week before I had my first baby. And I thought, when I've got time, I shall get this transcript out from under my bed and read it properly. And about 10 years later, and three more children later, <laughs> the youngest one started primary school. And I just thought, yeah, I've got to start doing something else as well. Um, and it's very difficult with four kids when childcare and blah, blah, blah. So this is something I can just do late at night or whenever. Um, And I pulled it out and I was just hooked on this story. And it was just, it reads like a drama script. You open the page, it's the court martial, and you've got the a, a list of characters, all everyone who's involved, a list of witnesses. And then it's just, you know, you're reading this story unfold and it's it's just been really interesting. So that is the genesis of American Uprising. The story itself is about the story of being an African-American serviceman in the Second World War and why it's so fascinating is it's it's a kind of a part of history that I think has been really ignored, especially in this country. I had no idea when I started researching that the US Army in the Second World War, for example, was segregated along the Jim Crow lines, separation of the South in America. And this caused huge trouble in Britain because the British people didn't like seeing the segregation. They didn't like it because it wasn't just being separated. It was the fact that black soldiers had worse treatment. They didn't have the same access to R&R. They didn't have the same access to transport. And they were verbally and physically abused on the streets in front of British people. And British people just didn't like it. The story taps in to this sort of racial tension that was building throughout the Second World War. And I'm still researching the area now, actually. And you can see it from the moment that the Americans hit the ground here. They bring with them the racial tension that's festering in America. And it comes and and Britain doesn't have a black population of more than about 15,000 at the time. So it was it was very stark the way that people of colour were treated and your average British person, and this is what was so fascinating for me when I went on to explore the book, when I did the research, I was reading unpublished sort of diaries and reports that were published, well, that weren't published actually, censored letters, all the letters were censored. They were all gathered by the British and American authorities. And it tells this story of British resentment at the way that soldiers of colour who'd come to fight for freedom weren't given the same freedom in the country they were training for it. It seems so weird now and it seems so strange that that was the reality, but that was the reality and the British people didn't like it. So for me, this story started as this firefight. It was an incredibly dramatic display and that 
was played out in the press, actually. So imagine how I felt, the story that my dad had told me. I went to the British Library. The British Library's got copies of all the newspapers. And I was going through every national newspaper from in October 1943. And every single newspaper carries this story. And not only that, it's front page. It was a huge deal. Further research in America, it was all over the place in America. People were talking about this story. And the reason they were talking about it is because this was a bird's eye view into American justice. It was a bird's eye view into the tension and everyone wanted to to see what was really going on. So this was a huge story, which I discovered was in every newspaper. And then the kibosh is put on it. They shut down the result of what happened in that trial. And I really wanted to find out what happened and to tell the story of what happened to these 14 guys who had, most of them had impeccable track records Most of them were incredibly young. The average age was 19. There's a picture I was lucky enough to find of them. It was in the Daily Herald. The Daily Herald is the sun of 80 years ago. It was bought up and repackaged as the sun by Rupert Murdoch much, much later. But at the time, it was the Daily Herald. It was one of the biggest selling newspapers. And they've got a picture of these guys, these young guys on its front page. And it's there because everyone was so interested in this story. So for me, it it was really interesting finding a story that interested me because it was about my dad and about Cornwall it's about the second world war because they're bullet holes and then telling this big story that is a largely unforgotten story forgotten story rather it's an aspect of the second world war that really deserves a lot more attention because most people when they they think about the second world war especially in drama tv and films it's a very white history it is Saving Private Ryan. There is not one face of colour in that entire picture. But for many people, that defines D-Day. Well, you know, the guys, my guys who were rising in Launceston, they were also involved in D-Day in Omaha Beach, but they just weren't given sort of a representation or a voice. So for me, the whole thing I just find fascinating on so many levels, as somebody who loves history, as someone who makes documentaries, as someone who who feels very strongly that stories like this are part of who we are today and we need to recognise and acknowledge them. That's basically what the story is about and the way I came to it through talking about it with my family and then researching it and then putting it in the bigger picture of what was going on. Well, you know, that's why they say sometimes uh, things are better second time round because the first interview you didn't go into it in that angle. Briefly, can you tell us where you're at You're at in terms of your book? How has it been received and where can people find it? It has been received really well in Cornwall, surprisingly, um, but I've won an award for it. It was given an award, the Cornish Book Award this year. The other excellent thing is it's inspired a lot of people with memories of the American soldiers being in Britain at the time, getting in touch and hearing their anecdotes, which has been fantastic. I've been lucky enough to be invited to lovely literary festivals in Launceston. There was the Charles Causley Festival. I've been to Appledore, which was awesome. I went to the North Cornwall Book Festival, which was amazing. Um, so that's been really lovely. And actually meeting people. There are a lot of people interested in this part of history. Because um, I feel we all think we know the Second World War, but you know what? We don't know it all. And there are a lot of people who are interested in that. So that's been great. And then very excitingly, it's been optioned by Cardiff Productions for a documentary and for non-scripted drama. So they are I am not surprised. I am not surprised. I'm just bursting with happiness for you. 
Oh, it's just, it's been so crossing fingers. Hopefully we'll talk again next year and there'll be even more to report. But it is a great story and it deserves to be told. I think those soldiers' story needs to be told because they weren't allowed to speak. You know, not very many of them spoke at the trial. They weren't even given a voice then. It's time we heard those voices and hear why they were rising, you know, because that's part of our history. And if listeners want to hear more about Kate's book and some of the stories in it, she actually does go into a few of the stories in the first interview. And I have remembered them, especially the one in the pub. And I'm not going to go into it because, listeners, I want you to listen to the story and even better, purchase the book. So where can the book be purchased, Kate? In most bookshops, actually, it's on Amazon.co.uk, it's on .com. uh, So it's available on Amazon and it's available through the publishers themselves. It's penandsword.co.uk. They're the publishers of the book. And the name of the book again? It's An American Uprising in Second World War England, Mutiny in the Duchy. Well, you know, how apt, because... I have to ask a question, which is better late than never, really, based on everything that's just happened. (laughs) So your chosen metaphor is better late than never. Why? I think everyone has a dream that they really, really want to see happen in their lives. I think everyone has that. And this, for me, being able to write a book, I'm going to be 50 next year. I just think it doesn't matter when you do it. If you have a dream, you have to keep working at it you must never give up hope because I'm so delighted that it's happened now that something that I wanted to do for me for my family for my dad has happened and that it's happened when I'm nearly 50 I don't care because it is better late than never definitely and there is a a maturity isn't there you know um, as you get older and I think that the, the way that you were I suppose you'd be more receptive to the information that you found, all the research and, you know, you'd be more of a humanitarian than if you had done it, you know, 15 years ago. Do you know what, actually, funny you say that. When I was actually writing, it took a long time to research, but I was writing the book. Um, We were going to tribunal with a council to get the education for our eldest who has got special needs. And we were fighting to get him into a school that can teach him. And it felt for me that, it was unfair. Oh, not unfair. You know, we have to fight for our boy because he can't do it for himself. And I felt a real synergy with the soldiers. No one was fighting for them at the time. No one was giving them a voice. So I found the writing of it very easy, actually. And I, writing something like this is sickening and it makes you very angry that people were treated like this. But I think if you just give people the facts, they can make their own judgments. But I had a righteous anger writing it, actually. And it was fueled partly, I know, through the fact that my son was being denied the education that he so patently needs. And, it, and you, you basically have to fight for it. So, you know, you have to fight for your children and you have to fight for, for the education that they need. But God, that was hard. And so writing about other people who weren't given an opportunity, they weren't given a chance for justice. They weren't given a chance to speak for themselves in court. I felt very passionately about that at the time. And I wouldn't have felt that 15 years before because I wouldn't be in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kate, thank you so much for sharing everything with us, the book, your your life, your family, everything that nurtured this wonderful book. And of course, the saying better late than never. And I think that at this time of the year, it's a good time 
to think about that better late than never, especially when all of us start signing up for those monthly gym memberships <laughs> that we use, you know, maybe January, maybe summer, February, and then, you know, goes by the, okay, better late than never. But now with everything happening in the way that, oh, okay, uh, people, you didn't see that, but she's uh, actually pointing at uh, something, someone. <laughs> but um, I think especially now, uh, in these times where um, health and, you know, all these viruses are concerned, we have to think that way, I think, better late to get yeah. vaccinated yes. or to listen to the facts. Even if you're not vaccinated, listen to the facts. Better late than never. Thank you, Kate, so much. My pleasure. So lovely to see you again. Take care. It sounds awful, but happy Christmas. It feels too early, but happy, happy Christmas. And take care, won't you? Thank you, Kate, for coming on the show today. I think we've all learned something new. I know I certainly have. Let's continue with our Better Late Than Never journey through time and meanings. Better Late Than Never nowadays endorses a new role. Even though it partially kept its original meaning, it's now also used to evoke sarcasm. For example, let's say that you render a work after the deadline your boss gave you. Once you finally give it to them, they can let it go by just saying, better late than never. Now we're going to see how, by using this sentence, your boss expresses two meanings. So, of course, you have the first meaning, the original one, which tends to reassure the person you're speaking to. They feel comforted because, indeed, it could have been worse and their achievement is still acknowledged. However, the second one is a bit trickier. By saying that, you're also implying that the lateness made the receiver consider the possibility of never getting the thing they asked for. It is quite an insidious way to seem nice to somebody while really being patronizing under the guise of humor. However, far from being evil, some people still use it with an honest kindness, such as Anne Hathaway to Robert De Niro in the movie The Intern, where she teaches him how to use social media. So you're on Facebook, huh? Well, I've been trying to figure it out. I joined about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) Well, better late than never. You want some help? I'd, I'd love some, but really, you've got better things to do. No, I need a diversion. Why is the meaning of the phrase now ironic, you ask? Well, it's because economical systems such as capitalism, for example, require certain punctuality. The more these economic systems have been developed, the more lateness has been frowned upon. For some people, Being late is even a huge shame, such as Lord Michael Bates, who in 2018 resigned from Parliament after arriving late in the chamber. My Lords, with the leave of the House, uh, I wonder if you would permit me to uh, offer my sincere apologies to Baroness Lister for my discourtesy in not being in my place uh, to answer her question on a very important matter uh, at the beginning of questions. During the five years at which it's been my privilege to answer questions from this dispatcher box on behalf of the government, I've always believed that we should offer rise to the highest possible standards of courtesy and respect in responding on behalf of the government to the legitimate questions of the legislature. I'm thoroughly ashamed at not being in my place, and therefore I shall be offering my resignation to the Prime Minister with immediate effect. 
Of course, the Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, did not accept his resignation. He eventually successfully resigned in 2019 and has since led a very private but happy life. In Japan as well, when a minister in charge of the Olympic Games arrived at a meeting three minutes late, he made a public apology. Following this event, Elizabeth Ohini, journalist and former Ghanaian minister, declared in 2019 to BBC News, I wondered how many ministers of state here in Ghana thanked God they were not Japanese. She also stated that if the government encouraged the president to arrive on time, it might change the political structure of the country. However, this attitude is not solely linked to politics. Ohini stated, for example, that when her dressmaker promises her address in three weeks, she's lucky to get it in three months. Even most churches in Ghana have an opening time for gatherings, but no exact closing time, since it's impossible to know when everybody will arrive. Even though better late than never can be understood in over 20 languages, the definition of lateness and its consequences themselves change depending on your location. But one thing that remains is the original meaning of the saying. Even though induendo has since been added, it hasn't cancelled the original intent. Nowadays, people might give up because they focus too much on the past, thinking they can't start a new project because they should have done it years ago. As for the famous humorist Pierre Dac once said, I have a bright future ahead of me, but it will be behind me every time I turn back. You don't know how young you are. What if you die in two years? You're pretty old right now. you got two years left. And if you're 50 years old and you're feeling discouraged, well, remember the advice about planting a tree. When's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago or today? So if you're 50 and you feel like life left you behind, well, get started right now. Better late than never. Better late than never. Don't think about time and age so much. It gets people distracted. When the whole world's distracted, you be focused. Better late than never is a saying which has followed humans throughout the course of history. Like us, the proverb has learned to adapt in order to survive and is now part of our daily lives. Taken literally or figuratively, this is a powerful saying which can be used either to make fun or to reward somebody. Better late than never, a podcast you finally heard. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you so much to Kate Warren for coming on the show. Don't forget, we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. If you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show instead, you can reach us at info at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking. 
Created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful, this episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Paul Verity. Script supervisor, Sabina Lautropra Garcia. Production assistance and social media graphics by Ojua Osemwenke. The final programme was edited by Erica Izzy and social media videos by Ernie Deneve.